Sam, welcome back for the first time in 2022. It's a brand new year, but it's the same corner kick. So happy to be here. I'm Nathan Strauss, and as always, I am joined by a man who did not post a very, very self-congratulatory message on his Instagram. It is Caleb Rhodes. No, I did not. I have no reason to self-congratulate. I'm in quarantine right now not because i'm ill but because i could be ill so we have to wait that out caleb are you saying your your covid experience (laughs) has not been good despite your 47 47 goals goals. scored across yes yes 100 percent. my covid exposed experience has has not been good and we're also joined by a man who did not place an advertisement for himself offering himself up to all clubs but tottenham it is nick gavinden no, although that was some pretty good self-PR there from Wilshire in a weekend of pretty poor self-PR from certain players, as we'll get on to. But I will say on that Ronaldo Instagram post, there perhaps was not like a more quintessential like screen grab of someone's personality than that like Ronaldo photo, which is like a very lovely photo of him and his family. And yet there's like no mention of his family in the Instagram captions, yet it's like how many goals he scored in the calendar year 2021 i thought that was you know just extremely fitting well, well he's trying to have Sometimes as many babies exactly what you get he's trying to have as many babies as he has goals in i was gonna career. say so, i was gonna say the only way they're one in the say, same the only way the only way that it could have been more ronaldo is if he had like also included his number of uh of like pregnancies at the same oh time God. but regardless <laughs> let's move on to the football this weekend had a couple of really big matches in the league uh, we can start off with the first match in the Premier League in 2022, Arsenal Man City. Now, I told Caleb the night before on New Year's Eve that it was one of those games that was so early on in the day. And knowing that New Year's Eve was the night before, I was sort of thinking, look, I'll wake up for it at 7.20. I'll see how the first 20 minutes are going. And if Arsenal are down 3-0, I'll go back to bed. But instead, it was uh, quite the opposite. And even though the final score was 2-1 to City with a last-minute goal at the death by Rodri. There were a lot of encouraging signs from Arsenal against, you know, arguably the best team uh, in England right now. Yeah, first, I'd just like to say it is criminal to schedule a game on New Year's Day as early as this. It should be illegal. That's one. Two, I, I agree. This is probably, even though Arsenal ultimately lost, one of their best performances um, this season and you know were it not for you know I think a, a bit of a suspect second yellow uh, for Gabrielle which we can talk about as well I think Arsenal were well placed to you know at a minimum keep this game even um, and I think you're right it is very encouraging and I think all of Arsenal's young players are starting to come into their own especially you know that trio of Saka, Odegaard um, and Emile Smith-Rowe so Good, good signs um, in the new year in 2022. Yeah, I mean, City were second best in this contest. Pep Guardiola even admitted it after after the game, where he said that they, you know they were not the better team, but they got the results. And that was very much one of those things where you know the champions go into a game, they play poorly, yet they come away with the three points. Um, I just think you know Arsenal. This game epitomized the fact that, you know, particularly in the decline of Aubameyang, they play this really lovely football and they have so many tactically astute players from Thomas Partey to Gabriel Martinelli to Bukayo Saka to, you know, Emil Smith-Rowe. When he came on, he did very well um, when Arsenal went down to 10 men. There's still a, a tinge of Arsenalness to this team, you know, in the Gabriel sending off in the Granite Xhaka penalty incident, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, and also, you know, the lack of really any significant goal production outside of you know some some really deft Emil Smith Rowe off the bench contributions late in games. But I think you know a striker is certainly going to need to be a focal point 
uh, for Arsenal's transfer business, perhaps this January or more likely in the summer. However, yeah, this is an incredibly impressive performance, especially considering, you know, you would think the team might lose a bit of their identity without Mikel Arteta on the touchline missing out due to COVID. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, this game ended up being what was really a, a great 55 minutes from Arsenal ended up being marred by the refereeing performance from Stuart Atwell. When you look at the penalty appeal that Martin Erdegaard had in the first half that didn't even get taken to the replay monitor, the frustrating part about this performance is that Atwell, when it came to the Granit Xhaka tackle in the box, initially you know, waved play on. He signaled no foul. You know, he did the sort of safe motion a la baseball. I actually think that Granit Xhaka, I actually think that it's both a dive and a foul. Like, I think it should be a penalty because yes, Bernardo Silva is throwing himself to the ground, but also Xhaka clearly grabs the shirt and the sort of standard that's been set is that that's a penalty. What bugs me is the sort of inconsistency with the way this game was refereed, like Bukayo Saka um, making a run up the right wing and then all of a sudden getting booked after Lacazette makes a tackle in midfield. That was sort of like confusing to me. Uh, Gabriel getting booked for dissent, um, you know, after which the penalty was, which was is given. Right, which he should have gotten booked for. He right. ran halfway, half across, halfway across the pitch to, you know, argue with Stuart Atwell. That's a yellow card, in my opinion. So all in all, it was just, it was a little frustrating just because I think that the way the game had been going, Arsenal probably um, win that game or at least take a point if they keep 10 men on the pitch. Um, and I, I do think that Ederson foul was a, a penalty. And listen, well, like, this, this no, kind I'm, of I'm us... in no way, wait, hold on. And I'm in no way, like, trying to come here and defend Stuart Atwell. Because I think that what you're, the basis, the thesis of what you're saying in terms of, like, the inconsistency in refereeing decisions in the Premier League this season has been real detrimental on, like, the overall product, right? However, I think this game, you know, there was definitely some poor decisions. I think the Bukayo Saka booking was, like, absurd. It was ridiculous. Uh, the Gabriel one, the second one, was a bit questionable. I think the two penalties are like really complicated and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not obviously a trained referee. So my opinion is going to be different from others uh, who, who have, you know, that sort of training. However, I, I'm not like inclined to believe that, you know, this was like as catastrophic a performance as some of the other, you know, refereeing incidents that we've seen this season. Also judging I, by, you know, some of the Arsenal fans reactions about like the Liverpool postponement and things. I think there is just a lot of like hostility right now. Um, stemming from, you know, Arsenal fans because they want to support a team that they love. Like, I think that's great. You know, Arsenal fans love this team and it's good that they finally have a team that they feel like, you know, represents them and plays really, really attractive soccer and they want to see do well and they can identify with. Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of brings us back to where we were a few weeks ago where it's just, it's unclear when they're supposed to review it and when they're not. And that's really where the problem rises because in the past, you know, these situations would have just happened and there would be like no recourse and it's like, okay, like move on. But now in theory, we have this video review that it, it it's unclear where or, and when it's supposed to be used before we move on to other storylines from the weekend. I think there's one, uh, storyline from this game that we should probably touch on, which is, you know, Pep Guardiola has been a little substitution shy, I would say, uh, this season. In this game, he only made a single sub with Ilkay Gundogan coming on in the 63rd minute. One of the men who has struggled uh, to get minutes um, in recent weeks and who did not make it off the bench in this game is Jack Grealish. What do we make of you know, the midway point in his maiden season so far? I mean, it's it's interesting because I still think it was a good transfer. Like, I, I do still think that Grealish, um, you know, represents a good player for the way Man City play. I think it reflects more on sort of Pep Guardiola's unwillingness to rotate um, in in-game and sort of make in-game changes. That's pretty surprising. If you look back at... City's game before the Arsenal match, um, you know, when they really sort of struggled to a 1-0 win over Brentford, playing some some kind of ugly soccer at times, just sort of like trying to, to suffocate uh, Brentford. Grealish played in that game, you know, was all right, made 45 passes playing as that sort of false nine striker. But I think Grealish really thrives when he can 
um, you know, dribble at defenses. And I, I'm not totally sure that having him as that false nine um, totally fits his talents. So ideally, I think Grealish will begin to perform for City when they eventually bring in that striker. Um, and, and so that Grealish can have someone ahead of him to, to sort of interchange with. But right now, uh, you know, clearly he's, he's struggling for opportunities. And part of that's on Pep. I think part of that's on Pep. I also think I'm not as, I, I was not as, you know, I didn't think this was going to be like an easy marriage between Jack Grealish and Man City, partially because, you know, Jack Grealish loves to have the ball. He loves to dominate the ball. He loves to run at people. He loves, you know, he's not, you know, the, the his first instinct is not to pass, right? And in this Manchester City team, you know, that is always going to be, you know, what Pep Guardiola wants you to do. Your first instinct is going to be to get your head up and see who you can, you know, pass the ball to to continue the move. He's got three goals in 19 appearances this season. So it's, you know, it's a meager return, but for all like the chopping and changing that City does, it's not horrible. Uh, he's always not, he's not been like the most statistical contributor throughout his career either uh, with Aston Villa. I think it's one of those things where he'll need time to really adjust. You know, there's been some personal stuff, you know, in the media as well with like him and Phil Foden going out during, you know, Omicron, which I'm sure has led to, you know, some distrust, distrust from Guardiola. So it's one of those things where I think like um, we're seeing from Bernardo Silva right now, like he went through his like salty patch with Guardiola too, where he wanted to leave. And now he's playing some of the best football of his career uh, in a role that is way more tailored to him. So it's one of those things where I think eventually they will get there between Grealish and City. I think it is just going to take you know a little bit of time for them to learn each other further. Yeah, and speaking of a choppy and changing game, maybe we can talk about Chelsea-Liverpool now, a game that we watched together. I feel like we've been together more times in the past three weeks than in the past like four years. Um, this is a pretty exciting game, 2-2, Liverpool going up with the early 2-0 lead before Chelsea fought back with two wonder goals Although at the same time, it was a game marked by some rather uh, suspect defensive maneuvers um, more than anything. Nathan, why don't you go first so we can give Nick time to gather his thoughts. What, what did you make of this battle of the chasing giants? I thought it was a pretty fair result, you know, at the end of the day. Um, I, I, <laughs> Chelsea have had a really hard time keeping all three center backs fit. And, and Thomas Tuchel complained about that a little bit after the game. Obviously, Liverpool were without Klopp on the touchline, so they had Pep Linders there instead. Um, and, you know, Liverpool are dealing with, uh, you know, this is their this was their last game before letting, you know, a bunch of key players go to AFCON. I thought we saw, you know, what looks to be the, the end of the Milner-Fabinho-Henderson midfield. Uh, there's just not enough mobility in that three. Um, but, you know, obviously the highlight of the game was Mateo Kovacic's just unbelievable sort of one leg, uh, you know, karate style goal um, that was inch perfect. And uh, I will say I was pretty impressed with Queen and Kelleher as well. I think uh, he made a couple of really big saves that uh, maybe he uh, wasn't expected to make. But all in all, I think it draws the fair result. And, uh, you know, the only real winner in this game is Man City, who saw both of their biggest competitors drop two points. I thought Chelsea should have won this game in the second half. I thought they really, I think, dominated the majority of most aspects in this game, particularly in the midfield. Like Nathan said, Liverpool's midfield this season has been, you know, when Thiago has not been playing, you know, when Liverpool have Thiago in midfield, they are 9-0 in all competitions. They've won every single game that he's started. When he's not been in it, their win percentage goes down by around 50-ish percent, which is a really scary prospect when you consider that this is a team that's supposed to be you know, challenging for three trophies, four trophies, if you want to count the FA Cup this season. So I guess like that competition hasn't started yet. Liverpool have been involved in way too many game-of-the-season contenders for my liking, you know, like the 3-3 at Brentford, the 3-2 at West Ham, the 2-2 at Tottenham, the 2-2 here. And the one linking factor between all four of those games that Liverpool haven't won any of those. And I think it's one of those things where 
Jamie Carragher brought up this great statistic where Manchester City have gone ahead 17 times this season and they've won all 17 games that they've gone ahead in. Liverpool have gone ahead 17 times and they've only won 12 of those games. So that you know control in midfield that really defined this team, that wave after wave after wave of possession and attack that led them to the title in 2019 has kind of regressed into the kind of chaotic gegenpressing football that Jurgen Klopp was playing with his team from like 2016 around to 2018 during their first run to the Champions League final, which they lost. And I think it's a case of Liverpool, this squad, when not everyone, the entire first team isn't available. You know, obviously Firmino was missing today or in the, the Chelsea game as well. I think he would have provided an element of control too. I just think that they need... The squad, as I've said, perhaps every single transfer window needs a refresh. It needs, it needs a refresh. It needs, you know, a midfield player coming in to replace Genie Wijnaldum and to ensure that, you know, when Nabi Keita or Tiago are injured, Liverpool can still, you know, progress the fall, can progress the ball forward and keep the ball, which they weren't able to do in this game. Yeah, and, and also, you know, an added element up top would be really nice too when, you know, Sadio Mane, who has been bang out of form for the past, you know, two months, I would say, gets a goal in this game, but still, you know, not fully up to his best. I don't think he'll ever be fully up to his best again. You know, he's approaching 30. You know, Salah is away at AFCON. Uh, Firmino, you can't count on his fitness anymore. Jata, without the the other three players available, you know, what is he going to really look like leading this Liverpool team for the first time? I just think FSG needs to dip into, you know, their resources a little bit and really support Klopp and Linders with some reinforcements to keep pace. Yes, keeping pace, something I feel like they're unlikely to do now with a bunch of key players missing this month. And it kind of leads me to this sad place where I feel like the Premier League is going to be very boring. Uh, for the second half of the year. Liverpool are going to drop a bunch of points this month. Chelsea are going to also drop a bunch of points this month, even if they have Lukaku back. This was, of course, the last game where he was out of the fold after that spat, um, which has been put to bed. But yeah, I think, as Nathan said, this is really the worst result uh, for everyone. Perhaps the one highlight, for me at least, um, was you know seeing Christian Pulisic um, have you know, a nice finish after a few horror misses earlier in the game. But this may have been the last exciting game in the Premier League this year um, in terms of, you know, importance to the title race. And that just makes me a little bit sad. So the irony of it all is that like Mateo Kovacic, who I thought was brilliant in this game, you know, highlighting why I think he's like one of the more underrated players in Europe particularly in terms of like his ball carrying, his passing. He's one of the best ball carriers, I think, in the world. And he's like the exact type of player that, that would thrive in a Liverpool midfield coached by Jurgen Klopp. So I think, you know, that was just sort of like, as he was scoring that incredible goal, made me, maybe a tear form in my eye because I wished, you know, he was, he was draped in the red. Well, Another team that's draped in red also dropped points this weekend, and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking about them, but there seems to be a, uh, a little bit of an issue at Old Trafford right now as another late Joao Matinho winner gave Wolves the three points against United. Even with their games in hand, United now could not get higher than fifth if they win that match that they have. And after you know an, an offensive explosion against Burnley, they were uh, pretty quiet, and it seems like players, aside from Phil Jones, who made his first Premier League appearance in almost two years, it seems like players are having a bit of a hard time adjusting to life under Ralph Rangnick. Am I, am I going? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what a mess, right? This is obviously, you know, Ralph Ronick's first defeat at the helm of Manchester United. But the Newcastle performance was almost to defeat, you know, save that, you know, Cavani goal, which he manages to scrape and it's a 1-1 draw. But they get dominated off the park by Joe Linton in midfield, which is, you know, tells you everything you need to know about the state of Man United's midfield. Talk all you want about the, the deficiencies in Liverpool's midfield. But at least we don't have, you know, Scott McTominay and Nemanja Matic starting as a tandem 
Like that is horrendous. And it says a lot about, you know, the squad building post Fergie that United's best player in this game against Wolves was no, not Rafael Varane, who finally gets to play against Phil Jones and a Manchester United center back, or finally gets to play with Phil Jones after 10 years of Man United fans wanting that. Um, no, it was not Varane. It was not Sancho. It was not Ronaldo. It was not Fernandes. Their best player in this game was Phil Jones, who was the lone stalwart along with David De Gea from the Fergie era. And I think that says quite a bit about United squad composition. And also, you know, where they are as a team. And there's been a lot of, you know, rumors and, and bumblings about the fact that the players are really not taking to Ronyak's high-intensity approach. They don't like how much, you know, they've been asked to run and, you know, change their approach as it was under Ole. And I think you can kind of tell that from the body language and, you know, the lack of them doing the things on the pitch that, you know, kind of define a Ronyak team, define a gig and pressing team. You know, there's not that commitment. Their running metrics have not really changed all that much as like it did with Spurs when Conte took them from 20th to first in, you know, off the ball running and things like that. So it's just, it's a mess right now. And Ronyak really needs to turn this around. And I don't mean on the pitch when he went from his 4-2-2-2 to halfway through the match, changing it up to a 3-4-2-1 on the fly and putting Jaden Sancho at wing back. He needs to find a way to find a formation and, you know, adjust his approach in such a way that can get the best out of this really talented squad. Because right now it seems like he's kind of losing them a bit. Yeah, I think I think that's the key point. You know, we know that Rangnick really likes the 4-2-2-2. That's his thing. Um, but I just don't think that Manchester United are especially, with their current squad, especially well-placed with a formation like that, I don't think it gets the best out of players like Jaden Sancho. I don't think it gets the best, especially out of a player like Bruno Fernandes, who, you know, really needs to be a cam. I think that's really the best position for him. And this is getting pretty dicey. I am at the point where I think you need to look towards the future and Rangnick's real job, right, is get them into the Champions League and prepare for the future. And for me, that comes with dropping Ronaldo and Cavani, playing like a Rashford Greenwood front line, trying something new, actually getting in the young players because, you know, Cavani and Ronaldo aren't demonstrating that they can pull this team into the top four right now. And so I think you might as well just try something different and roll the dice. And we kind of predicted this at the beginning that the Ronaldo transfer was going to end up not really improving the team. And if anything, disrupting a lot and, Halfway through the season, that seems to be true. New manager, fifth place in the Prem, and Phil Jones, you know, star of the squad. I think Ronaldo is definitely a problem, and it's we've definitely been proved right on that point, and he's ruined Juventus, and now he's ruining Manchester United, just as he, you know, and he's a coach killer too, it seems. And it's just also like any team with a bang average to above quality midfield can come to Old Trafford and play United's midfield off the park because United's midfield is just non-existent. Like in this game, it was Moutinho and Neves who have far more quality than Matic and McTominay or any combination of McFred and Matic or whoever. Um, They got played off the park by Everton this season at Old Trafford, even though that was a draw because Allen and Dekure have more quality in their pinky fingers than any other midfield players at Man United. So it's one of those things where it's like any team that has, you know, a decent structure in midfield and have players that are willing to work hard, like even Joe Linton, who that was playing his first game in central midfield for Newcastle can, you know, do well against this United team, which is really scary. I, I absolutely believe that Ronaldo is the problem, not just because he doesn't press, but also because he demands the ball in a way that takes away from the players United have around him. You saw his frustration and him throwing a little bit of a hissy fit um, on the pitch when he wasn't getting the passes that he wanted or the calls that he wanted. And all in all, you know, obviously when United signed him this fall, they couldn't have necessarily planned for the fact that things would switch up system-wise, but clearly the first step is going to be dropping him. I would also advocate for maybe trying out a player in Donny van de Beek, who was part of an excellent high press for Ajax for a number of years, but that's neither here nor there. Why don't we take a jump to Spain where there's been all sorts of action from 
Barcelona and Madrid struggling to wins in the Copa del Rey against third division teams today uh, to Barcelona picking up a one nil win and Madrid losing one nil to Hatafe this last weekend. Caleb Rhodes, you have your pick of those four matches. Take it away. <laughs> well, I'll probably stick to the Barcelona matches. Of course, the first one, a one nil away victory on the beautiful island of Mallorca with a severely depleted Barcelona team missing, you know, 17 players due to injury or COVID. Our starting 11 had four center backs across the back. We had to start Ricky Puj in the midfield. Um, our offensive line was, you know, 17-year-old Ilias Akomik, Luke de Jong, who, you know, kind of gave it to the haters and, and scored the winner with, you know, a very Luke de Jong goal, which was a, a header. But he also almost scored a pretty Zlatan-esque, um, you know, bicycle kick, which careened off the crossbar. This is a pretty nervy game. Um, I'm glad that we got the points, but it's also a game that never should have been played. I think back to, you know, earlier this fall and Chavi mentioned this too, how I think Sevilla were able to get a game postponed because they had four players stuck in South America due to COVID travel restrictions. And that was, you know, enough to postpone a game, but suddenly, you know, missing 17 players, most of which due to COVID isn't enough. I think it's, uh, a little ridiculous. Also, something to note from this game, this may have been the first time I've seen Marc-Andre Ter Stegen make a save in about three months. Um, and it was an incredibly <laughs> important save. I, I wish I was kidding. Like, I can't actually remember him other than like, you know, little like dribbler shots and kind of like roll to his feet and stop before they even get toward the goal. But he had a really important save in this one um, late on off of a sort of like flying volley from across but all in all, happy with the points here. And I don't know if you want to take a break or I can just dive right into the Copa del Rey too. Whatever whatever you guys want. No, we're going right Yeah, the get Copa the Copa del, del Rey. Rey out of the way. Let's do it. Talk okay, to us Co- about Danny Alves' glorious return yes. to Barcelona. So today, with a slightly less uh, depleted squad, Barcelona played Linares Deportivo, Um which are like a relatively new team. I learned that this is a club that has gone into bankruptcy like eight times. And so they keep renaming themselves with like Linares, FC, FC, Linares, CF, so Linares, definitely some F, fraud Linares, going on over there. C, like Deportivo, Linares, FC. You got to, I mean, they kind of just like throw words at the wall and one of them has to be Linares. Um, and and they, that's, that's just like peak, peak, peak money laundering and peak fraudulence, but continue. Uh, yeah, so so Barcelona rolled out the, I think it was like a 3-1-4-2 formation. Not really sure what was going on. As usual, I thought it was Ming- like a 3-5-2. Yeah, something like that. As usual, Mingueza made a, well, Puj made a defensive error by not pressing. And then Mingueza made a defensive error by not defending. Um, and <laughs> we seemed like a really bad <laughs> error to make if you're a defender, yes. but I don't know. Yes. Yes. In fact, the error was so bad that after that goal, Chavi switched around the center backs. So suddenly Mingueza got moved to left center back um, and Araujo got moved to right center back because he just, whatever. Um, but yeah, the most important element of this game was Danny Alves making his second debut. And he was pretty electric, I'll say, although it's hard not to be electric against a third division side. Dembele scored... Uh, the the tying goal and then Ferran Yutgla, the not not Ferran Torres, Ferran Yutgla uh, scored the winner. Probably the disappointment from this match has to be though uh, Ricky Puj, who you know in his second consecutive start only lasted until halftime um, with some you know cheap giveaways and sort of poor defensive positioning. And I hate to say it, but I think I think his time might be coming, um, and that makes me quite sad. But I've I think I've seen enough now. Of Ricky Pooch. Yeah, it's kind of sad because no, no, <laughs> no. His time might be coming. coming. He's off to his heavenly kingdom. He's gonna cross no, no, over no. Jordan. He'll, he'll, and, uh... No, no. We'll we'll bin him off to Getafe like every other. Maybe Betis, but maybe I that think... Saudi Arabia deal goes. Yeah, I think, yeah. or or he'll join Sergi Samper in Japan. I Japan. just think when when you have a midfield where like 
three other youth players that are all younger than you, like Nico, Pedri, and Gavi are all better than you. You know, I, I don't see him playing much more than, you know, a bit part role if he decides to stay around. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I thought Jukla looked pretty good, but Barcelona have a history of just producing these like incredibly random 21 to 23 year old strikers who do well for like 10 games and then get sold to Roma. Obviously, Jukla is a little Carlos bit Carlos Perez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was basically a Carlos Perez roast. But like, I mean, obviously, Jukla is a little bit different because he was signed. Or Everton. He was... Or Everton. What was that guy's name? Sandro? Oh, yeah. Sandro Ramirez. Ramirez, Sandra Ramirez. I think it's also at Hitafe now, maybe. Uh, um, no, he's at Huesca, I think. Uh, yes. But the, the point still remains that Jukla's situation was a little different just because he was signed for Barcelona B like a year ago. But you know, when you play alongside a Barcelona caliber supporting cast, you should be able to score like six goals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I watched this game because first and foremost, I'm a sadist. Uh, and second, I had nothing to do uh, given, you know, COVID and being out in Amherst. And uh, Barcelona were probably lucky not to have this game actually tied up 2-2, a sort of questionable offside call later on spared Neto because he dropped a ball that was headed in off a corner, but uh, it, it was called back. I mean, this game was pretty much what you'd expect. Like, Madrid really struggled later on with, with Alcoyana, who obviously beat them last year. And I think it's a big difference, um, you know, between the Copa del Rey and, uh, you know, other domestic cups like the FA Cup, because, you know, you're playing teams that are oftentimes from the third division up and they're really competitive and their grounds are really small and really vocal. And, you know, the, the, it's it was a really cool thing to watch because of how, I think enjoyable and atmosphere it looked like. Uh, and the same goes for the Real Madrid game. But, you know, there's only so many things that you can interpret about a team you know, or about a game against a team of this caliber and with the sort of lineup that Barcelona put out. But was very cool to see Denny Alves playing as sort of a number eight. Um, and hopefully he can, you know, play a little bit of a role for Barca this spring. I think the, the Copa del Rey and also, you know, the French League Cup should also get a shout out too, because that's, you know, that's been going on for a few weeks now, but the French League Cup, I think is really fun because it's not just French teams. You have teams from like Martinique and, you know, French colonies, Tahiti, all throughout Wait, the world. Wait, Nick, I'm too. sorry. What, what what was that island that you just mentioned? Martinique. Oh, oh, uh, Martinique. Martinique. Anyways. Uh, Tahiti. Tahiti, um, but like, Wait, yeah, I think they're Tahitian teams. Yeah, in the in the, in the French know. League Cup, bro. Cool. Yeah, the French League Cup is not to go on a total tangent here, but the French League Cup I think is really cool because you have all these teams from you know French colonies around the world who you know get involved in that competition, and the Copa del Rey I think is really cool for you know those reasons as well, where you know you have teams from the islands and teams where you really need to do a do a Google to find out where they're from. And, you know, not to say the FA Cup doesn't have some of that beauty as well, as we saw last season with, you know, Spurs against Marine, which I thought was really unique uh, to English football. But, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Copa del Rey and good to see, you know, Barcelona get through here in a game that was actually quite competitive. Madrid uh, had a, a bit of a different week. They obviously, they lost this last weekend uh, 1-0 to Hetafe, as we sort of previously uh, touched upon, but uh, they then came up against Alcoyano today, a team that actually knocked them out last year, and uh, it was pretty nervy. The game got tied up again, and then, of course, Madrid were playing a significantly stronger squad than uh, than Barcelona were, if you uh, you know compare the two teams, but you know, Alba started, um, Alaba, that is, started. Casemiro played and, and should have been sent off. Uh, it was kind of a wild game. We even saw a late uh, Danny Ceballos cameo, a player who I forgot played for Arsenal until he came on the pitch. Uh, but yeah, that's the wonder of the Copa del Rey, I suppose. Is there anything else that you want to touch upon in Spain before going on to, uh, uh, I guess, some transfer news that originates in Spain? Well, I think let's go right on to. Well, let's do. Um, do you want to? Let's do. Let's end. I guess we're going to end with Lukaku, huh? Yeah. Yeah, so let's then let's go to transfer news because it's obviously the beginning of the winter window. A number of deals have that have been sort of hashed out over the last few months are beginning to come to the forefront. And first and foremost, it's the return to England for Kieran Trippier as he heads to Newcastle for 14 and a half million 
or thereabouts. I think it's a deal that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about what the perfect match might be for Newcastle, who are obviously flush with cash, but also players who might not be enticed at the possibility of uh, being in the championship next season. I mean, I think Kieran Trippier had accomplished just about everything there was to accomplish at Atletico Madrid. Obviously, played in some big European games for them. Uh, won La Liga. I don't think they were ever really a contender for the Champions League, as indicated by you know this season's group stage performance. I it's just one of those cases where he's been abroad for quite a long time now, which is unusual for a top level English player. And now he's you know going to a new project where he's going to kind of be one of the focal points for Eddie Howe and that team. It seems like this was very much a Eddie Howe-led signing you know, to bring someone in from abroad with Premier League experience. And he's going to have to play you know, a lot of games really quickly for Newcastle. He's going to have to be up to speed. But I think he immediately brings you know, an improved sense of defensive cover. Uh, work rate, which I think is kind of defined this Newcastle Eddie Howe experience in the past few weeks, particularly as we've already indicated that game against United, where I thought they worked their asses off and probably should have gotten the three points. But I think it's a huge signing for Newcastle and a huge indicator that they're looking at bringing in some big names this January. Yeah, I actually think this is a, a, an excellent signing because he's a player that knows the league, knows how to like scrap as he did, you know, when he was at Burnley and also is the right type of person that can, I think, lead the team a little bit and also is probably definitely going to get paid more, you know, at Newcastle than he would, um, you know, continuing on at Atletico Madrid. And I think, as you mentioned, Nick, he got his La Liga title with Atleti. He now has a trophy to his name after, you know, being runner up in the Champions League, um, runner up at the Euros last summer. Um, and yeah, I think this is a, a rather sensible move. And, you know, as we know, he is a criminal with his uh, gambling experience and uh, he joins a, a, a club run uh, by some people other criminals. Some criminal history. Yeah, no, it all, you know, adds up. I will say, though, he was available for 12 million plus add-ons. Why weren't, Tot- why weren't Tottenham looking to bring this guy back? For that you think money. Daniel Levy wants to admit that he made a mistake? Like, no, dude, Emerson Royale is garbage. He's so in this, bad in this content system. So bad. Kieran Trippier <laughs> would be so much better in this uh, in this Antonio Conte setup, and not being stuck with you know Matt Doherty and, and Emerson. Who Emerson? Oh, I never. We didn't talk about this game, but that Spurs Watford <laughs> game. I have the absolute displeasure of watching on New Year's Day. And I think Caleb did as well. And it was, you know, <laughs> Emerson Royale obviously had like the entire right side of the pitch to himself because Claudio Ranieri was like, you know what? We can like not mark that guy because we know he can't deliver a ball into the box. And he delivered about 30 crosses into the box out of which I think only like two of them made it. 28 of them like careened off of the first man. So when I heard that Kieran Chippier was sold for 12 million, I was like, why weren't Tottenham, you know, looking to bring him back? So that's neither here nor there. Well, the point is, at the end of the day, Trippier will be, uh, you know, a higher profile player for Newcastle, who obviously picked up that big result against uh, United last week. They obviously have a ways to go. But other transfer news uh, from Spain to England today, rumors, strong rumors, not quite confirmed yet, but certainly in the realm of being confirmed that Felipe Coutinho is going to be moving to Aston Villa on loan. Obviously, he and Gerard overlapped at Liverpool, and Coutinho is not someone who particularly fits into Barcelona's system. They also need to shed his wages. This could be another really fun uh, opportunity to see, you know, uh, a player who's had a bit of a downturn since leaving the Prem uh, find some success in a sort of attack-heavy Aston Villa team. Yeah, I think this is a move that could be great for everyone. Um, I think Coutinho, you know, even once Xavi came, still hasn't really found a place in the team. And I think it's pretty evident that he's not part of the 
sort of near-term future as well. And as you mentioned, we do need to shed wages, namely his and Umtiti's, rather soon, uh, and maybe Dembele's as well, uh, in order to actually, you know, register our new player, uh, Ferran Torres. Um, but I think, yeah, going back to, you know, work under Gerard, who I think was his teammate at Liverpool during probably some of his best years um, as a player could be, you know, exactly the move he should make on a personal level. I also think, you know, it will do wonders uh, for Aston Villa, who after, you know, their famous, we have a plan for, for how to replace Jack Grealish. It's not one player, it's three. Um, and I think only really Danny Ings has, has panned out of, you know, the Leon Bailey, Emmanuel Buendia and him uh, purchase. And so I think Coutinho in a lot of ways has a similar-ish profile to a Jack Grealish, a kind of left-sided attacking player um, who isn't really a direct winger, but more of a creative. And I think this could be a, a win-win-win for all parties involved. Yeah, I think this is really going to be Coutinho's last chance, right? He had the loan to Bayern Munich, which even though he scored those two hilarious goals against Barcelona and the A2 wasn't really fruitful. This, I think, is probably going to be, you know, one of his last high-profile moves. It's back in the Premier League where he made his name. It's back with a very, very high-profile club and an even more high-profile manager and Steven Gerrard. And Gerrard is someone who has good man management skills. However, he does not suffer fools. You know, there have already been several players in this Villa team who I think have made their last appearances for Aston Villa because Gerard is kind of fed up with them, like Morgan Sanson and players of that ilk. So I think Coutinho is going to have to come in and he's going to have to come in dedicated and up to speed if, you know, he, that loan is going to end up becoming permanent for him. I love the phrase does not suffer fools. It's a little bit of Shakespeare there from Nick, which is pretty on brand, but uh, you never know what, what kind of idioms we're going to get on, on corner kick. I guess let's move on to a transfer that I find really interesting. Uh, it's one that's been rumored for about four months now, but as of yesterday, Lorenzo Insigne has signed one of the most lucrative contracts in Toronto sports history, as he will join Toronto FC of MLS on a five and a half year deal. Now, Toronto are obviously experienced with Italians. They had Sebastian Giovinco, uh, the atomic ant, for a number of years, and he was excellent, one of the best players in MLS at his time. But Insigne is a player who is closer to the prime of his career, is still very much involved uh, you know, with the Italian national team. And I think this signing is an extremely ambitious one both for the player and for Toronto himself. Yeah, I mean, this is a one of the more high-profile transfers that MLS has ever conducted. I think if you look at you know the age of the player, Insigne is 29. He's still in the prime of his career, fresh 30. off of... He's 30 now? I think yes. he's 29 still, isn't he? As of, as of June, he is 30. Okay, so by the time he joined... Toronto, he'll be 30, which is still the prime of his career. And I think in MLS, we've seen players be able to, you know, elongate that prime somewhat. Uh, this is probably the most high-profile transfer since Latan. I certainly think it's more high-profile than Carlos Vela. Uh, Insigne is fresh off of winning a Euros, and he's going to MLS the following year to a team, you know, who has, you know, an established pedigree with taking these kind of European stars like Michael Bradley, like Josie Altador. Um, who, you know, I think the the latter two have not panned out as great in the long term, but certainly for a few years there, it was working very well. Jermaine Defoe also. I think this is the type of transfer that MLS has tried to get away from in recent years. You know, there's definitely been more of a focus on bringing players up through youth academies or signing young talent from South America uh, for less money, but I'm glad to see that, you know, there is still, you know, that classic, you know, MLS big money, big market transfer uh, in the works and in the league that Insigne is going to come to this league. And I think really, really, he's going to do two things. He's going to dominate some subpar MLS defenders, and he's going to be very cold, very, very cold in the winter months in Toronto. So I hope he, he's bringing a jacket with him, and I hope he's bringing, you know, that same flair 
that Napoli fans have become accustomed to. I think it is a bit of a surprise that he's not finishing his career with Napoli since he's become, I think, along with Dries Mertens, uh, a cult figure at the club. I don't think I think cult is a bit um, not as generous as a term to define. You know, his time with the club. He's a really he's going to leave as a Napoli legend. So I'm a bit shocked to see him go. But for that money and for that salary, now I'm not surprised at that. I, 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 I cannot wrap my head around this. This is like Giovinco on steroids. He might be like the best player in terms of like where he's at to ever transfer to MLS ever, right? Because as you said, he really is pretty much at the peak of his powers. I mean, last season in Serie A, he had the most goals, 19 and 35 games he's ever had in his career. You're right. He's coming off of being one of the most important players at the Euros. And I, I truly, I, I cannot, I just, I, I can't fathom this at all, especially because, you know, I think, and maybe it's that, you know, the Dries Mertens, you know, Callahan kind of era of Napoli is, you know, increasingly coming to an end. But I really thought that he would stick it out you know, until Napoli won the league. And this is probably the closest they're going to be. I don't know. I, I feel like he might come to regret this at some point. Um, but, but who knows? And as you said, Toronto, it's just like a very, it's a, it, it's a very cold place for, you know, an Italian from Naples. Um, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a cold place. Um, it's a great city with, really great fans. I do find it interesting that, uh, you know, he makes more money now than any player on like the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is pretty funny just given, you know, how important a team that has been to its respective league. I, what I will say though, is that I'm not totally sold on the idea that these types of transfers produce winning teams in MLS. No, obviously, I think that's definitely true. But obviously Toronto had a lot of success with Altidore and Giovinco, but when you look at the fact, when you look at how like the revolution who obviously set the single season points record last year, um, you look at how they um, built their team. You look at how NYCFC, the current champions, you know, built their team. By the way, shout out to James Sands, who's moving to Rangers on an 18 month loan and then a transfer. Um, you know, it's really an emphasis on your academy. Like, yes, the right DPs are necessary to score goals, but you cannot succeed in MLS on the back of one superlative player alone. And that's what Steven Gerrard found out. That's what David Beckham's LA Galaxy found out. Like so Ibrahimovic found out as well. Right. And obviously it's what Ibra found out as well. So Ibrahimovic who scored a goal a game for that LA Galaxy team or just about I think it was like 55 goals and yes, 57 he also averaged he also averaged 0.25 choke slams of opposing defenders per game. Uh while but it's one of those things well. where the, the surrounding <laughs> team didn't have the resources to improve with Zlatan you know, right. at the helm of that. Right. And, and because... it's one of those things where it's like Inter-Miami, you look at that project where their academy has kind of been secondary to bringing in stars of the past decade, like Gonzalo Higuain, like Matuidi, like Higuain's brother, <laughs> to uh, satiate Gonzalo Higuain. Um, He's a hungry man, okay? You can tell. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where I think, Nathan, you're right, where it is an emphasis on finding players either from you know South America or other leagues that can produce at a much cheaper cost or you know bringing players through your academy to sell for you know a far greater profit and you can reap that kind of well, cash yeah <laughs> I, I mean like unlike every other league you know there is a sort of uh, you have a, a salary cap right you have an, a, a limit to the amount not a salary cap it's not a, a, a hard cap but you have limits on how much money you can spend. So it's not a free market. So it becomes this sort of efficiency thing. And one thing the Revs did well is they balanced out their squad by, you know, paying a bunch of good players 400 to 700K instead of playing three good players, you know, um, you know, two to five mil. So I'm really curious. It also makes, I think, MLS a lot more of a global. Um, I mean, obviously MLS is trying to, win a certain demographic in the States, but it does show an ability for MLS to compete for players on free, tra free transfers, even if, um, you know, there might not be another player, the caliber of Insigne, um, who is available for a little while. Do we want to wrap things up by talking about uh, 
a man who uh, will not be making a free transfer anytime soon. Sure. I think, yeah, let's talk about Lukaku. I think we've been sitting on this for a little bit. We're obviously a bit late to this discourse, seeing as this he started today in their Carabao Cup game, Chelsea's Carabao Cup game against Spurs, which they won 2-0. And it seems to have been you know relatively put to bed. There's certainly going to be some uh, frosty feelings there for a while. But yes, this is coming off the heels of Lukaku doing an interview without club consent with Sky Italia three weeks ago. It was published at the end of last week, and there was some really, I think, incredible comments from him regarding Thomas Tuchel, regarding the tactics at Chelsea, regarding his love for Inter Milan, regarding you know his disdain for how he left the club, how much he loves being there. And I think, you know, reading this, you're like, okay, these are quotes. I think we all saw these quotes like on Twitter first, right? From Fabrizio Romano and other journalists. And then you read the interview and I, I read the actual interview and I'm like, wow, like these quotes are actually somehow like even worse, you know, in the body of the actual <laughs> interview, like in the context of it. And it's one of those, I'm just so, I'm caught between two minds here after having some time to reflect on it. And one, it's an incredibly foolish thing for him to do because the man has zero leverage on this Chelsea team. They won the Champions League without him. You know, the fans are fully behind Tuchel. It seems like the players, Chelsea is famously known for player power being the thing that, you know, gets managers the axe. The players seem to be fully behind Thomas Tuchel here. And Tuchel indicating that he talked to the quote-unquote big players. I can only imagine that means like the captain as Piliqueta, um, probably some of the more senior members of the team, Thiago Silva, et cetera. And I just don't, and it, it just seemed like he wanted to please, you know, the Inter fans that he left in kind of an ignominious fashion, you know, where he promised them in the summer that he wasn't going to leave after winning Serie A, but he did because it seems like the club had to accept that money for him, that like over a hundred million sum. But also this is like an incredibly human thing to do like we have all had the like moment where like we've wanted to like text our ex right and be like listen like we can talk about this you know it's fine it's obviously not as like public and as dramatic as a Lukaku situation but I think it's like an incredibly human thing for him to do and an incredibly foolish time and method to do it yeah I don't understand this man I think I get the sense now that there might be a reason why he's been a bit of a journeyman um, in his career. And I think it might have to do with sort of behavioral, you know, quirks like this, where he's been injured for most of the season, like hasn't been able to do very much. And frankly, especially recently, Chelsea have looked like they've needed a player exactly like Lukaku and they spent a bucket load of money on him. And I, I don't really understand it. You know, I'm glad that they've, you know, kind of put this situation behind them. And, you know, I expect him to have a, a strong end to the season as long as he stays fit. I think this is, is well and truly put to bed, but I think it did sort of bring up something about, you know, his career, which is the fact that he has never really stayed at clubs for very long. Um, and I think there might be, you know, reasons beyond just like contingent circumstances that that are responsible for that i i will say that i agree with nick in that it's pretty funny how sometimes you'll see someone like romano or you know some other sort of twitter journalist break the news of some quote and it'll be a little bit sensationalized and taken out of context this was definitely the opposite where like the 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 quotes were terrible and the contact was terrible like i've really never seen in soccer um, any sort of player openly court a club that he just moved from like that. Like it was the utmost of the grass isn't always greener on the other side type thing. He's um, no leverage. He is no leverage. Yeah, he has no leverage. He just moved for what 115 mil and enter uh, and credit to their CEO who was like, look, we literally just replaced you with Ed and Jekko for free. And like, haven't really seen that big of a drop off in results. Um, so like, Look, I mean, I understand that he might want to go back. I understand that he might be having a hard time at Chelsea. Uh, but it's still like, 
just like completely inappropriate and unprofessional. And if I were a fan of Chelsea, I would be understandably pretty furious, uh, even though the situation has still been resolved now, just because it's uh it's it's just a bad look all in all for, for everyone involved. But most yeah, of the funniest part of this story. So I was doing some Googling on Lukaku, and it turns out that when he was like having to do his studies and stuff, he has a degree in public relations. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And it makes it leads me to believe, Caleb, that I think some of what you're saying is true and that like he has like some behavioral things and th- but he also like has a full awareness of how he's being perceived and you know exactly he knows he knows what he's doing when he's like calling out Thomas Tuchel in this sort of setting and I think this was like in some roundabout kind of way like trying to put pressure on Tuchel to like change the system to make it accommodate Lukaku I don't even know I, I, I can't really you know speculate as to what his reasoning was but it's one of those things where I am just, I I really like Lukaku. I really, I love Lukaku as a player. I love the personality that he brings as well. I think he's like one of the most pure center forwards we've seen in this era. But like, at some point you need to just like buckle down and start scoring goals for this Chelsea team. And I understand that like he's a player that's, that wants to be loved. Like, and he was, he felt loved by the Inter fans. He felt loved loved by Antonio Conte in a way that he hadn't been felt in a way that he hadn't been loved at Manchester United under Mourinho and and under Ole. And it's just one of those things where it's like, you're not going to be loved everywhere you go. That is just like a reality of life. And sometimes you need to hunker down and make the best out of a situation that is not ideal. And you can't keep moving around when that situation doesn't become ideal anymore. And if I'm Lukaku, you know, I look at all this happening. You make that apology on Chelsea TV or whatever, where it looked like Roman Abramovich was standing behind the camera with a gun trained on Lukaku. You need to score goals now. You need to score goals because you were not brought in to score. For with all due respect to Aston Villa, you were not brought in to score goals against Aston Villa, which is where the majority of his goals have come from this season. You know, he's got three goals out of five against Aston Villa. You were brought in to score goals against Liverpool and to score goals against Tottenham and to score goals against Man City. And, you know, he wasn't present for the Liverpool game because of this. Man City is coming up and, you know, they're going to play Tottenham again. And those are the games where he's going to have to prove that, you know, this is well and truly behind him. I think alternative reading is that that public relations degree is not worth very much. It's a, it's a funny way of, you know, trying to public relate your way into being loved by the fans is to say, you know, I don't want to be here at all. You just spent a what club record fee on on me and like boohoo. So, but we but we can put this conversation to bed because he's put it to bed with the club. And as you said, you know, back to the football. That's where he'll he'll probably do the talking, the public relating. Yes, you might say from here on out. <laughs> he didn't exactly do much talking today. He got subbed off at. Uh or rather didn't get subbed off at halftime, got subbed off uh, not at all, but he only had about 12 touches of the ball he was all awful game. Today. Yeah, he got he had 12 touches of the ball yeah. all game, which is uh, really bad when you're going up against a team like Spurs on the day. Before we end, did you guys watch the video of the, the Ben Davies own goal? Because I've never seen an own goal like that before. It was great. It, 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 it was a great finish from Ben Davies, in fairness. And it reminded me somewhat of that uh, Sunderland own goal from like seven years ago. I forget the dude's name, where it was just like an, an incredible finish fit in the top corner, but it was like his own goal. Yeah, Ben Davies heading the ball off of Jaffet Tanganga's back and then into the back of the net. Truly a, uh, a wonder in goal scoring. But uh, does anyone have anything else or should we leave it there? No, I'm good. I'm good to go. Yeah. Well... A fun uh, couple of days of soccer coming up. It's it's an FA Cup weekend uh, for most teams uh, pending COVID protocol and all of that. Tomorrow, we've got Juve Napoli in the afternoon, Milan Roma at 1230. Uh, And, you know, the Bundesliga returns from its hiatus as well this weekend. So 
plenty of soccer for everyone. Uh, and no Arsenal-Liverpool, is- though. No Arsenal-Liverpool, though. Right yeah. now, Arsenal do have a span of uh, four games in nine days on the calendar. Sorry, four games in 10 days on the calendar, which obviously isn't super sustainable, but I'm sure one of those will end up getting moved. Um, but we will have more on that for you next time. Uh, and until then, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Ritz. I've been Nick Gavinden. No public relations degree needed to communicate that. And we will see you all next time.